It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, they wanted me to tell you just a little bit about me. I'm not quite sure what I should say. I'm a 75-year-old man. I was born in the Chambersburg-Greencastle area. My father was Roy H. Martin. I have 11, 10 brothers and sisters. Well, I had 10 brothers and sisters. Two of them have died. Uh, I spent a lot of my life teaching school, and then I worked for CLP. I uh, wrote their first textbook, Living Together on God's Earth. How many of you have ever studied that little textbook, Living Together on God's Earth? Okay. All right. And uh, then I w uh, went back to teaching, and then my father died. Then I farmed for two years, and then I went back to teaching again, and uh, then I retired in 1985 and been doing this type of thing, teaching Bible schools. I work as a copy editor of medical journals, and in the afternoons I answer the number on the CAM billboard. So that's my life. All right. <clears throat> We're going to talk about the kingdom and tonight we're going to just talk about a kingdom perspective to understand what this is all about. And then tomorrow night we'll begin with uh, the kingdom personality. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about a kingdom perspective. I think it's very interesting how God has placed within man certain desires for the fulfillment of his purpose. Okay? It's God's purpose that men and women get married and so there's this strong desire for romance. And it's a desire that God put there because he had something he wanted to accomplish, okay? Uh, man has a desire for immortality. People often ask me when they uh, call from the billboard, how do you know there's life after death? And I said, well, I have observed that God gave us certain desires and those desires have a fulfillment. We have the desire for food. Well, there's food. There's such a thing as eating. We have a desire for love, as I said. We have a desire for all kinds of things. Uh, and one of the things that man has a desire for, it's a very strong desire. It's a desire to rule. Now, you've been told all your life that you need to curb that one. <laughs> well, we have to learn to use it properly, but that's a legitimate desire. God created man to have dominion. It's one of the first things that's said about man. And that word dominion is the word, the, the Hebrew word rada, which means to tread down, to, 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 to have, have power over. And that's what we were created for. We were created to have an influence, to count for something in this world, uh, and have an effect on the people around us. And it's interesting that... Uh, that desire is so strong that if people are mistreated and trodden down by rulers who are selfish, they rise up and rebel. Uh, we did it here in 1776. Actually, uh, the first time that happened in modern history was at Runnymede along the Thames River in, uh, near London in 1215. Uh, they, the nobles said to King John, we're going to have some say in the taxation. And uh, my wife and I actually visited that place here some years ago. And then I remember when it happened in, Latin, in, uh, in Africa back in the, in the middle of the 1900s when one country after another declared their liberty. Okay. So the problem is that the devil perverts all of our desires. He takes love and turns it into lust. 
And uh, he takes this desire to have an influence, to count for something, to, to, to do something in life that makes a difference. He takes that desire and he perverts it. And then we have all the problems that we have. Self is the great spoiler. I've come to believe that the word selfishness is a synonym for sin. In fact, people ask me on the billboard calls, what is sin? Well, I could give them a theological definition and then they would argue with me. But if I say it's selfishness, they all recognize that and they all recognize that it's bad. (laughs) And they recognize that it's the thing that spoils everything. It's interesting, I went to the dictionary some years ago and counted the self words. Do you know that there's something like three or 400 self words in the English language? Uh, Self-aware, self-assertive, self-confidence, self-conscious, self-expression, self-fulfillment, self-gratification, self-righteousness, self-image, self-sufficient, self-catering. So there are just hundreds of these. I think it's sort of indicative of the problem that we have. Now, there are a few that are good words like self-denial and self-discipline, but most of them are indicative of how selfish we really are. So God did, though, make us to be kings and priests unto God, Revelation 1.6. It says he's made us to be kings and priests unto God. Matthew 5.13 and 14, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. God expects us to make a difference in our world. It was God's purpose to exercise his authority on this earth through the man he created. That's God's purpose, all right? But it's a sovereignty under God. The first occurrence of the word king in the king, kingdom in the Bible is in Exodus 19.6, and it says there that the nation of Israel is to be a kingdom of priests unto God. So this is a mediatorial kingdom. It's not a, an absolute kingdom uh, that we are to exercise here on this earth, all right? Uh, and when it goes wrong is when we think it's an absolute kingdom and we can make absolute uh, 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 statements and so on. We are to mediate God's kingdom. We, were to, we are to bring our society here on this earth, the society of the redeemed, to be as near like the kingdom of God as possible. It'll never be perfect. We're human. We make mistakes. There are sins enter in that have to be repented of and wrongs get done and people sometimes get hurt. Uh, but we sh- our, our goal should be to make that kingdom as much like the absolute kingdom as possible and demonstrate to the world God's righteous rule. It's just, it's merciful, it's kind, it's true, it's right. And that to me is what it's all about. Uh, You know, (laughs) uh, the problem is, The gospel has been presented most of the time as what I call a save-me gospel. I used to teach high school, and when I would ask the students at the beginning of Bible class, what is your reason for being a Christian? I'd pass out a piece of paper and have them write down their reason for being a Christian. And always they said, because I want to go to heaven when I die. I don't think I ever had one student in all my years of teaching that wrote down that they're excited about actualizing Christ's kingdom on this earth and demonstrating the beautiful reign of Jesus in their life and in their congregation. I don't think I've ever, I ever got that from anybody. Uh, and so, for some reason, if you go back to the early church creeds, there's not a one of them that says anything about the kingdom of God. Take the Apostles' Creed. It talks about uh, 
God. It talks about Jesus, and then it talks about him dying on the cross and resurrecting. And then it talks about his coming again. <laughs> That's the Apostles' Creed. Well, N.T. Wright has called that the empty cloak gospel, where you have the first couple verses of the couple chapters of Matthew, and you have the last few chapters of Matthew. But what about all those verses in between? What about all the, 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 the verses in between in Luke? It's an empty cloak. Uh, and if you, if you hear the gospel preached by many people, it's, it's about getting saved and going to heaven. In fact, that's one of my issues with people singing gospel songs to the exclusion of the hymns, because those gospel songs were written during revivals and during evangelistic meetings, and they are all about getting saved and going to heaven and how, much, how wonderful that's going to be. Uh, so <clears throat> the problem... <clears throat> is that people do not see their salvation as a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. When Jesus began preaching, what did he say? He did not say, repent if you want to go to heaven, although that's true. That is true. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he always called the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, if I were to ask you in the parable of the soils, what is the seed? You're going to say, it's the word of God. And it's true. A couple of the uh, Gospels say that. But Matthew says, the seed is the word of the kingdom. And you go into chapter 13, and it says, the seed is the children of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus used the term kingdom in his teaching at least 124 times. He never called his gospel anything else. And even at the end of his life, when he was here for 40 days, if you go to the book of Acts, and we're not turning to all these references tonight, you can go home and look them up. It says he spent those whole 40 days teaching concerning the kingdom. That was his message, okay? So, <clears throat> I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever you bind that is declared to be improper and unlawful on earth must already be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth declared to be lawful must be already what is loosed in heaven. That's sort of how that should read. Uh, I took that from the Amplified Bible. Uh, so our purpose is to understand what that kingdom is, is like and, and how to bring that to bear on this earth. And if we can perceive that properly, what we say on this earth is then binding. All right. So... Uh, <clears throat> This was to be a rule of goodwill that demonstrates God's purpose for his people to experience well-being. My, my understanding of the church is to be a little colony of heaven on earth. That's how we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a little colony of heaven on earth demonstrating what God originally intended for society to be. And see, that makes sense then of non-resistance because before man sinned, there was no need for violence. It was a perfect society. Selfishness came in with man's sin, and then we have government set up and rule and coercion and all of that. And now Jesus came and dealt with the issue of selfishness and brings us to a place where we can live unselfishly. We need to do a lot of repenting and learn to live that way. But he wants us to demonstrate what society was originally intended to be, and I tell people on the phone, that's why we do not believe in exercising coercion over people, because coercion belongs to the kingdom of this world that governs 
to keep sin in check. That's not needed now in the church. Uh, People who are converted, if they're truly converted, will keep responding and learn to live in a way they don't need to be coerced. And so I tell them that if we get involved in coercion, if we get involved in violence, we spoil this whole picture of what the kingdom is supposed to be. Okay? So God never abandoned his original purpose to have his perfect society on this earth. In fact, in the nation of Israel, that was the purpose of that nation, to demonstrate God's righteous rule, what a nation looks like whose God is the Lord. And now that's his purpose today, to demonstrate a society, what a society looks like whose God is the Lord, to demonstrate what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed the king. So Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. And uh, that's what we are supposed to do. So what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is the sphere where God's authority rules, okay? And the church is to demonstrate what that beautiful authority looks like, okay? Now, the fall perverted man's capacity for power, and that's why people uh, shrink from the whole idea of power uh, because uh, Satan perverted that, and then we have men misusing it, people like Hitler, people like Stalin, people like Mao Zedong, people like Castro, And so when people hear that Jesus wants to be Lord of their life, and I hear it on the billboard line all the time, I don't want anybody to dominate me. When you you give your life to somebody to, to control, they take advantage. And I said, yes, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus does not take advantage. Uh, He's doing it for your good. Okay. Well, let's begin with Abraham. God told Abraham to come out, and he said, I'm going to make you a a nation that's going to bless the whole world, okay? And that was God's purpose for Israel. I want you to, to, uh, do want to turn to a few scriptures tonight. Would you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8? So my purpose tonight is to convince you that your salvation is a means to an end, not an end in itself. In fact, Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, what will happen? Say it. You'll lose it. Charles Finney wrote a book years ago called Lectures to Professing Christians, and I don't remember anything in that book except one statement that hit me between the, the eyes, and I never forgot it. He said, any person whose primary purpose for being a Christian is to escape hell shall surely go there. And then he quoted the verse, he that seeks to save his life shall lose it. And he was making a case that we are saved for a greater end. We're not saved, it's not, it's not for me. It's not about me. In fact, go to the book of Ephesians and read that first chapter, which is a wonderful description of salvation. God chose, Christ redeemed, the Holy Spirit sealed. It's all there in that chapter. There's nothing said about going to heaven. The chapter ends with the church and how God has invested the church uh, with, with everything that he has. Uh, in fact, let's just turn to that just very quickly to show you how that chapter ends. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1. We could start reading at verse 15. Uh, 
In fact, we will. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, he's, he's praying this prayer after explaining God's work to redeem man. He chose man, he redeemed man, he sealed man with his Holy Spirit. And then this is, this is to be the result. And so he's praying that... Um, God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, not the hope of your calling. Uh, we often talk about the hope of our calling. This is the hope of his calling. And what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? God looks down on this little group just like a person who purchased a property and says, what's the potential of this property? Well, I think this piece of land over here will be good for this, and that building will be good for that. And he works to bring to realization his purpose for that, that property. Well, the church is God's inheritance. He looks down on the little church here at Bethel, and he sees all the potential here. And he'll never uh, be completely satisfied till he sees that potential developed and brought out, and this, uh, the kingdom of God being expressed closer and closer to the ideal. It's his inheritance. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? And then it talks about the power of the resurrection. And then the part I wanted to look at is down at the end of the chapter, where it says, and have put all things under his feet, verse 22, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. And what is the church? It's the fullness of the person who fills everything. <laughs> That's the culmination of this whole discussion in Ephesians chapter 1 about God's redemptive work with man and his purpose and its fulfillment. It's to finally find its fulfillment in the church. The church is to be this city set on a hill. It's to be this colony of heaven. It's to be the, the world should look in and see the lost ideal of man. They should look in and see the lost ideal for society. They should say, if you want to know how man is supposed to live, you go, go to that church there at Bethel, and you, you just live with those people for a while, and you'll see how God originally intended for people to live. You'll see the ideal that's down deep in my heart actually carried out in that little community there at Bethel. I hope you're getting the point. But see, we stop with personal salvation. Oh, I'm, I, I need to get saved so I can go to heaven. Oh, if I do this, will I go to heaven? If I do this, will I go to hell? If somebody says that to me, if I do this, will I go to hell? I say, well, you probably will, not because you did that, but because of your whole mentality <laughs> about God <laughs> and yourself. All right. So <clears throat> my salvation is a means to an end. Because man fell, God can't have these ideals fulfilled until he does something with me. He needs to salvage my life. And by the way, that's what the word salvation means. It means to salvage. Out there, they basically have given it the definition. It means to get to heaven when you die. No, no, the word salvation comes, it's from the same root as the word salvage. It's this whole work of redemption that can, is an ongoing thing to make us more and more like Christ and to make this community more and more like the society God originally intended. Now, let's go to Deuteronomy. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. I just want you to see what God had in mind for his nation in Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 4, 6. Keep therefore and do them, talking about his law. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. 
this was the influence they were to have. This is what people around them were to see when they looked in. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I have set before you this day? Now the queen of Sheba came to visit this nation one time under Solomon. And we know after Solomon died, it, there were a lot of things going on in the kingdom that weren't perfect by any means, but it was far superior to anything this woman had ever seen. And she said, I heard about this nation in my land. I don't know what she heard, but she must have heard it. There was a lot of beautiful ideals there. And she said, I didn't believe them. And I came here and I haven't been told to have. There isn't a nation that has such wonderful just laws. There isn't a nation whose people have such great well-being. In fact, through the Old Testament, and every time uh, it says this, mark it, and you'll find it over and over again. God says, do this that it may be well with you. Do this that it may be well with you. Do this that it may be well with you. <laughs> God wants a nation that demonstrates the well-being of people who live under his rule and then can demonstrate that to the world. <clears throat> All right. So, Deuteronomy 28, 14 says this will only happen if you don't veer to the right or to the left. Keep God's law. And one time going through the Old Testament, I underlined the times where God said, be sure to do all of this. He said to Joshua, he said, if, if you will do all of this, then you shall have good success. You will make your way prosperous. And that's why David said, oh, how love I the law. It's my meditation all the day. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That's quite a statement for the Old Testament. All right, so <clears throat> that's the Old Testament. God wanted this nation to demonstrate what he originally had in mind for man. Man's well-being. In fact, God said, if you will obey me, I won't put any of these diseases upon you that you had in Egypt. And go, go through the, the laws of hygiene of the Old Testament. It's amazing. Are you, know, are you aware they weren't to eat the fat? What were they to do with the fat? They were to burn it on the altar. God was looking out for their cardiovascular health. The other nations threw their refuse into the streets. The, uh, and, and they did their things wherever. God said, no, dig a hole in the ground and put it there and cover it up again. God said, Whatever you can't purify with fire, you should purify with the water of separation. Well, the water of separation was fresh water from a running stream with the ashes of a heifer stirred into it. Does anybody know what the ashes of heifer mixed with water would, would give you? Soap. 3,000 years before anybody knew anything about soap, the children of Israel were using soap. They were quarantining people who had infectious diseases. In fact, the bubonic plague that wiped out one-third of Europe, they say, was stopped because somebody discovered the principle of, of quarantine in the Old Testament and applied it. And that was one of the things, among some other things. They, they also learned it was carried by rats, and they dealt with that too. But the quarantine was, was one of the things they used. All these things God gave them for their well-being, even their physical well-being. And that's what God wants us to demonstrate to the world. This is his great passion. 
He says, seek you first the kingdom of heaven. Seek you first the kingdom of heaven. Your, your passion should be to make this little community of faith as perfectly conformed to God's will and a sense of well-being and justice and mercy and love and all of those wonderful qualities that God originally intended for man to express. That's what he should see here. And it grieves my heart when people bring things in to defile, things of pride, things of selfishness, self-will, self-expression, all of those things work against it and create tensions and problems and finally divisions and all this ugly stuff that happens. And now one of the reasons why I'm so concerned that everybody get this in their mind is if, if, if all you're looking at is yourself, well, then all those things happen. But if you really do have a purpose to make this a beautiful expression of the ideal society that God intended, and you relate to each other with your differences, and you work them out, and, and, but your purpose is always to work them out, get it worked out, not let it cause a problem in the brotherhood. I think we're going to see a much better emphasis on the church. I think we basically generated a lot of individualism in the last century by a revivalistic mentality that it's all about getting to heaven. And listen, I believe in revival, and I believe that people should be concerned about going to heaven. Don't misunderstand me. But when people ask me on the billboard, what do I have to do to get to heaven? You know what I say to them? You have to join the kingdom of heaven now. Well, what's that? And then we're discussing this. See, most people would say, well, what you need to do is you need to pray the sinner's prayer and you need to believe and you need to get saved. Well, I believe all of that, but let's, put, let's give that some definition, all right? And so, uh, in fact, I have people say to me, I never heard that before. I never heard the whole idea of bringing heaven to earth, that that's what it's all about. In fact, many of them that have left churches in the past, disillusioned and frustrated, say, if I had heard that message, I've heard this more than once, many times, in fact, if I had heard that message, if that, goal, if that had been the purpose I was given for being a Christian, I'd probably still be a Christian today but I got sick and tired of being scared constantly into my responsibilities by fear of hell. You see, if the goal is at the end of life, here's a teenager struggling with all the issues a teenager struggle with, and it's all the end of life is what he's always supposed to be thinking about. If we're going to talk about the kingdom, it gives a present purpose and an inspiration and an excitement about life. I'm helping to create this ideal society. I'm showing to the world what the whole world would look like if everybody made the king. They're looking in and seeing the lost ideals of men, and I don't want to do anything to spoil that. It's just a wonderful uh, concept of life. Well, what did Jesus preach? Well, I've already told you. The Beatitudes begin and end with the kingdom. The Lord's Prayer focuses on the kingdom. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> Jesus said it's God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. All right? In actual experience, we turn to the book of Acts and we see, we see what happened there. What did Paul preach? I'd like for you to turn to some of the scriptures. What was the content of Paul's message? Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. 
verse 8. This is Paul at Ephesus. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading things concerning the kingdom of God. That was his message. For three whole months, that's what he preached. Let's turn to chapter 20. He's taking his leave of the Ephesian elders here. And he says in verse 25 of chapter 20, And now behold, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Turn to chapter 28, the end of the book. What's Paul preaching at the end? Well, the Jews come to hear him teach once he got to Rome. And in verse 23, it says, And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God. That was his message. Verse 30, here's the end of the book of Acts. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hard house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God. So there's no doubt what the message was. In fact, <laughs> what, is, what is the church to be? Well, we find an interesting reference. When we leave the Gospels, we hear the kingdom. Paul talks about us being translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. But mostly, the word kingdom, it finally becomes the church as the present expression of his kingdom. But, but we, have, we have some interesting observations here. Would you turn to Acts chapter 19? And here we have a riot. Remember that riot in Ephesus where everybody yelled for two hours, greatest dying of the Ephesians? And the town clerk comes on the scene and he says, now, wait a minute, we're going to get in trouble for this. Verse 39, but if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. And I think it's really interesting if you look that word up in the Greek. It's this word. That's the word the town clerk used. And that's the word that we get the word church from. And so if you went to a Greek town and you said, take me to the ecclesia, they took you to the town council. And so if you ask most people what the church is, they say, well, it's a called out body. But my question is called out for what? Called out to rule, just like the town council. Suppose you went to Washington, D.C., and they were dismissing Congress, and you'd have said to them, what'd you do today? And they'd have said, oh, we just had the most encouraging discussion today, and we had a fellowship meal, and we just really enjoyed being to, in Congress. You'd say, now, wait a minute. You weren't there just to enjoy each other. You were there to make laws. You were there to govern. And so this word ecclesia literally means called out to govern to bring God's government to bear on our, our lives and to demonstrate to the world what God's government looks like and how they need to relate to God's rule. We're here to, we're here to, to uh, discuss among ourselves how God's authority can be brought to bear on the practical issues among us and come to some agreement and walk together in that and, and uh, live under God's authority and... and uh, allow his authority to, to, to rule among us. That's what we're here for. 
and then also to have an influence on the world. We're here to, to, to bring the government of God to bear on our lives and then on the lives of the people around us by our character and our influence. All right. <clears throat> well, so that's what we have in the New Testament in relation to uh, the, the, the kingdom of God. So, what about man? The kingdom of God and man. Well, the Bible says that there's a light that lights every man that comes into the world. Every man out there is hardwired with the basic ideals of the kingdom. When I speak to people who call me from the billboard, I know that I'm addressing something that down deep in their heart they know is right. They know right from wrong. That's putting their conscience at birth. Okay, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in their heart. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. All right? We were made for the kingdom of God. That's what we were made for. And when we violate that kingdom, we get consequences. It doesn't work. We have guilt. We have disintegration. We have all kinds of negative things happen when we violate the kingdom of God. When we violate the kingdom, we violate ourselves because we were made for the kingdom. I always like William Wordsworth's little poem. I'm going to read this to you. I heard a thousand blended notes while in a grove I sat reclined. In that sweet mood when pleasant things bring sad thoughts to the mind. To her fair works did nature link the human soul that through me ran. In other words, he saw in nature what in his own soul he sensed. And much it grieved my heart to think what man has made of man. Through primrose tufts in that green bower, the periwinkle trails, tra trailed its wreaths. And tis my faith that every flower enjoys the arid breeze. The birds around me hopped and played, their thoughts I cannot measure. But the least motion which they made, it seemed a thrill of pleasure. The budding twigs spread out their fan to catch the breezy air, and I must think, do all I can, that there was pleasure there. If this belief from heaven be sent, if such be nature's holy plan, have I not reason to lament what man has made of man? We were made for the kingdom. We were not made to be selfish. We were not made to focus here. We were made to focus on Christ's kingdom and bring it to bear on this earth. I often think of the city of Philippi as an example of this. Philippi was a Roman colony in the middle of a Greek culture. If you walked to Philippi on your way, you would have heard the Greek language, you would have seen Greek dress, you would have seen Greek culture, you would have heard uh, in the courts, you'd have heard Greek laws. But the minute you stepped inside of Philippi, it was Latin. It was Greek dress. It was Roman dress. It was Roman law. It was Roman justice. Everything was Roman in Philippi. It was a little Roman. Somebody has said Philippi was, was Rome away from Rome. Do you think the people in Philippi said, oh, we have to be so different? Why can't we be more like those? No, 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 no. They considered themselves a superior culture. And that's how we, we should look at the kingdom of God, that it is indeed superior, that has the answers 
to all of man's issues. I want you to turn to another interesting scripture. Would you turn, turn to John 17? John 17. <clears throat> These words, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer, of course. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son. That thy son may also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now look at this next statement. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now when you think of the finished work of Christ, what do you think about? You think about the finished work on the cross when he said it is finished. Did you know there were two finished works of Christ? His first work was to demonstrate the character of God, the ideal for man, what man lost in the fall, how that life was supposed to look. He was to demonstrate that on this earth. And he was finished with that. Then he was ready to go on and do the second work that he came to do, which was to die on the cross so that we could have that same life. So the next time somebody says to you, do you believe in the finished work of Christ? You should say to them, which one? Because they never talk about this one. When you hear the gospel preached, it's all about the sinner's prayer and getting a ticket to heaven. And in its worst form, of course, it's irrevocable. You have your ticket. You're good to go. And N.T. Wright has said, Protestantism has never known what to do with the gospels. See, what they do is they go to the epistles and they construct their theologies to justify all the things that they've concluded. And then you come to Jesus' teachings and they don't fit. You can be a good member of many conservative Bible-believing churches and you can be divorced and remarried. You can swear oaths. You can go to war and kill people. You can accumulate wealth for yourself. In short, you can disobey everything Jesus said. Because that's not the focus. The focus on the kingdom was lost somewhere before the Apostles' Creed. And like I said, none of the creeds. Go back and read all the church creeds. They say nothing about the kingdom. I think there's one reference in the, the Creed of Constantinople, but it places the kingdom in the future. It doesn't talk about the kingdom here and now. That's completely missing from their thinking. All right. And that's what Jesus focused on. That's what his whole work was about, to make it possible, first of all, to demonstrate what human life should have been, and then to die on the cross to deal with selfishness so that we can now live out those original ideals and demonstrate those to the world. And bring glory to God, obviously, uh, in doing so. <clears throat> Humanism describes man's capacities, but they're always frustrated because those capacities are never realized. They can't be until selfishness is dealt with. I mean, take, take uh, uh, communism. <laughs> communism says... From each according to his means, 
to each according to his needs. Where did that come from? That's right from the gospel. Communism is a gospel heresy. But it never happens. Why? Because until selfishness is dealt with, a few elites will get everybody else to give up their wealth, to share it, and somehow it ends up in their pockets. And I tell people, till selfishness is dealt with, these wonderful ideals you humanists talk about will all turn into a nightmare. They always have. Selfishness is the great spoiler of the, of the ideal society. Communism projects <laughs> the ideal society where everybody shares, everybody's treated right, everybody's given uh, worth, but it doesn't happen. Between Stalin and Mao Zedong, 100 million people perished under that gospel. This is a double tragedy. It's not only a sin against God, it's a sin against ourselves. It's a sin against men. We must be born again. Jesus said, if you're not born again, you won't even see the kingdom of God. It makes no sense to them. And if you're not born again, you'll not enter the kingdom of God. There has to be a new birth. The selfishness has to be dealt with. And that's my plea tonight. I don't know where you struggle with this, but this is where, this is where I struggle. And uh, actually, Christianity begins, and we'll talk about this more tomorrow night. In every heart, Francis Schaeffer told us, there's a throne and a cross. Before conversion, self is on the throne and Christ is on the cross. After conversion, Christ is on the throne and self is on the cross. And that's the tremendous change that has to take place. And only when that takes place will we begin to have any success whatsoever in living out these kingdom principles that we're going to talk about uh, beginning tomorrow night. In fact, the cross has to remain. We have to take it up every day. Self is going to want to assert itself the rest of our lives. And Jesus said we have to take up our cross every day. What does that mean? Well, let's say this is the way of self, and this is the way of Christ. So you're going along, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, the way of Christ goes this way, not this way. So you have to make a decision. Am I going to continue on my own selfish course, or am I going to let self go on the cross and all my dreams and hopes and, and so on for myself and take the way of Christ? And the reason you have to do that every day, in fact, you have to do that in every decision. You have to do that all day, every day. I do. Every time I have a decision to make, I have to deal with self. And it's possible to deal with self because God gives us grace. And we'll talk more about grace in a, in a future message. And uh, people don't understand this. Here's a fellow who goes downtown to buy a car. He has his dreams. He'd like to make a statement. He, he has a picture in his mind what that car should be like. So everybody uh, turns their head and looks when he goes past. He puts that on the cross. And he says, in Christ's kingdom, what would a kingdom car look like? What would a car look like that would not emphasize me 
that somehow would bless the brotherhood and would demonstrate how people, to the whole world, what a car should mean to a person. What kind of car would that be? And then he puts self on the cross and he obeys Jesus. And he ends up driving a car that everybody looking at would say, down deep in my heart, I know that's the car that Jesus would drive. I know that's the car that a person should drive. I, I sometimes teach uh, lessons in some, uh, the, the, some of the Protestant churches in town sometimes ask me to come do a Sunday school lesson. And after one of them, uh, somebody said to me, what's different about your church? And why are there so many different churches? And I said, well, suppose everybody forgot about all their preconceived ideas about church and everything and just said, we're going to live as honestly as we know how for Jesus. Do you think Jesus would drive a brand new Cadillac? No. And I went through a whole list of things. And, And the man that asked that question said, I see what you mean. If people were absolutely honest about what Jesus taught, we would pretty much be able to come together and agree. But here's the problem. We have too much uncrucified self, and it gets in there. And so I'm making a dress. So I'm going to choose some material that will cause heads to turn a little bit, and I'm going to make it in a way that cause heads to turn a little bit. I'm going to do the same thing with my hair, and I'm going to do... You follow what I'm saying? That, all that has got to go on the cross if we're ever to have any semblance of the kingdom of God. And then all the tensions that arise because of this stuff will die down and, and people will begin to think of others and forget about themselves and will think of Christ and think of the kingdom and think of the world, uh, what they should see and the ideals that the kingdom of heaven represents. That's my great challenge to all of us. Listen, the communists won one-third of the world with this promise, from each according to his means and to each according to his need. They couldn't deliver. Suppose the church had taken that same message and would have delivered. And people would have looked at the church and they would have seen there was no rich and there were no poor. In fact, I think that's why the early church had such tremendous influence. Julian the apostate, after Christianity had basically been established as the official uh, or as, as a tolerated religion in Rome, Julian the Apostate tried to revive paganism, and he failed. And he clearly said why he failed. He said, those Christians, they not only take care of their own people, they take care of ours. We don't take care of our people the way they take care of their people and our people. If there was a plague hit the city and everybody ran for their lives, the Christians stayed, risked their lives, some of them died to take care of the people who were sick. And that's how the early church lived. There was, there was an amazing outpouring of selfless devotion to Christ and his kingdom. And that's what I'm calling us to. Um, <laughs> maybe I should open it up for questions. But let's begin to see our salvation. This change. This way of life. Not as a means to get to heaven. Ultimately, of course, that's what it is but it's a means to the end 
that Christ's kingdom can be established here, that selfishness finally does not rule our lives and does not dominate our decisions and does not basically occupy the church constantly with problems. Let's think how we can build. Let's think how we can enter into each other's lives. Let's think how we can sacrifice. Let's think how we can uh, make these decisions for the kingdom of God and let him be glorified. His kingdom is a great kingdom. I often think about Russia. I'm going to conclude with a little story. In 1988-87, Russia celebrated the 70th anniversary of Marxism. And they marched their armies down through the streets. They, they trotted their weapons, their tanks and all. They had a great parade and they celebrated 70 years of communism in Russia. How great and glorious it was. In 1988, communism had fallen. It was ended. But in 1988, the church celebrated its 1,000th anniversary in Russia. 1,000 years. And the Russian Orthodox Church was not the greatest church, but it was at least Christianity was there. And there were people who were true Christians in Russia. I think of that song, Oh, where are kings and empires now of all that went and came? But Lord, thy church is praying yet a thousand years the same. And I, my prayer is that you folks would leave this meeting pondering this whole idea. Is it going to be self focused on getting to heaven? Or is it going to be selflessness focused on getting heaven to earth? In fact, Jesus said this gospel, the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world and then shall the end come. He said, for this purpose, I came to the world to preach the gospel of the kingdom. I mean, you could just over and over again, Jesus said that. So what's the purpose for doing missions? Is it to go out and tell everybody, if you don't get saved, you're going to go to hell. That's true. Or is it to go and establish a colony of heaven and demonstrate the kingdom of God so that those people can look in and see the lost ideals of man and want to participate in that ideal society. Jesus said we're to go preach the kingdom of God. That's what he told us to preach. So I'm going to leave it at that. Um, I guess the question I'm asking tonight, is it a selfish salvation that we're focused on, or is it a selfless dedication to making this body right here in Gladys, Virginia, a beautiful unblemished picture of the kingdom of God. Forget about self. Pour it all into the kingdom. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Father, we thank you tonight for this wonderful way of life that you planned for man from the very beginning. And then when it got messed up, you came to show us that ideal. And then you died on the cross so that we could can have that ideal restored, not just individually, but in a society of redeemed people that demonstrate what that original society was intended to be. Lord, may that capture our passion, our imagination, and possess us, Lord, with, with zeal to make the church a beautiful example of what you intended for it to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.